This episode may be supported by advertising depending on your location. Moments like these that showed that you know the emperor all of a sudden if he's not naked he's going to be naked pretty soon. Hello and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Oscar Boyd. This week, the end of Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. This is part one of a two-part look at the end of Shinzo Abe's record-breaking tenure as Prime Minister of Japan. In this episode, we'll be joined by Abe biographer Tobias Harris to discuss how Abe lost his grip on power and look at who might be next in line for Japan's highest political office. In part two, Tobias will join us again to look at Abe's legacy. But first, Japan Times politics reporter Satoshi Sugiyama gives us his account of reporting on Shinzo Abe's historic resignation on Friday. Satoshi Sugiyama, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's nice to be back. And you're joining me from the Parliament Press Hall in the National Diet. So, Satoshi, toward the end of last week, Abe announced he would be holding a press conference to discuss his health on Friday. What were you expecting from that press conference when he first announced it? Right. So, I was expecting that Abe would give some sort of explanation about how Japan will uh, tackle the coronavirus toward the fall and the winter. And there were some expectations that he is going to give an explanation about his health condition. But you didn't expect him to perhaps announce he might resign? Well, there have been rumors that he might be considering stepping down. I mean, the fact that he went to health checkups twice in just one month. And in one visit, he was at the hospital for seven hours, which is unusually long time to be there. Uh, There were concerns, definitely. But the fact that um, after he finished his second checkup, he showed up at prime minister's office saying that I'm just going to work as hard as I can. And it, it seems like, you know, he was determined to carry it on. But later, we found out that at that time, Prime Minister already decided he was going to step down. So you turned up at the Prime Minister's office around two o'clock on the Friday, a few hours before he was due to give his press conference. At that point, what did you know and how had things changed? Right. So (laughs) I was actually on a vacation that day, uh, but the Prime Minister was going to have a news conference at five. So... I got there around two o'clock, and, but when I entered Prime Minister's office, I felt something was a little different. Reporters were just rushing in, running toward the building. And when I got there, I saw a group of reporters uh, on the corner of the entrance floor of the Prime Minister's office glued to television screen. And when I look at what it was on TV, it was an NHK news flash that said Prime Minister Abe, Shinzo Abe, has decided he is going to step down. And reporters were just dumbfounded and flabbergasted. I vividly heard one of them just said, oh my goodness, this is it. Like, this is it. Abe was not at the Prime Minister's office when the news flash um, emerged and he 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 came back uh, like an hour later and then emergency cabinet meeting was convened uh, so that Abe would officially tell 
he's going to step down. So so it leaked to uh, NHK before Abe had even had a chance to brief the cabinet. Right, that appears to be the case. And like one cabinet minister basically said that I found out about him resigning through the media report, through through the media report. Afterwards, you sent me this amazing video of, I think, some of the press gaggles that day at the prime minister's office. And it's like a elaborate kind of mating ritual almost that you'd see on a David Attenborough show or something like that with you know everyone kind of swarming mm. around and then moving and it's right. you know, like a, a dance of a flock of birds or something but w- was that just like the general atmosphere during the day um, from then on? Right yeah so reporters were just trying frantically to confirm the report and they were just trying to get reaction from as many different people as possible There are about 20 or so cabinet ministers, and they were just one after another. They were showing up at the prime minister's office, and reporters were just trying to get them speak, trying to get their reaction, trying to get their thoughts about what's going to happen next, who might even succeed Abe. It was very chaotic, crowded, and a lot of energy, a lot of excitement, and a lot of uncertainty in atmosphere. At five o'clock on the Friday was when the official press conference started. What was it like watching the presser and, you know, in that speech, what did Abe focus on? Right, so Abe started off his news conference by essentially laying laying out plans for the coronavirus measures. He talked about, you know, providing vaccines for all the Japanese people or the population. And then he talked briefly about developing national security strategy uh, with North Korea and China in mind. And then he started to get into reason why he is going to step down. And he, he talked about his health uh, deteriorated starting in June. And he thought that he was unable to make a critical decision with his illness. He gave a laundry list of policy achievements uh, he did under his administration, but he also talked about regrets he wasn't able to carry out including constitutional reform, getting Japanese citizens back from North Korea. I could even tell there was, like, he was a little bit teary. Um, he had a tears in his eyes that basically, yeah, um, it was reflected on the lighting. And, and what was the general atmosphere amongst reporters and those in attendance at the press conference like? Right, so reporters were just curious to see who is going to replace him? And Abe said, look, I am not going to name uh, the successor. Uh, that process is, um, is a matter at the, politi- at the LDP. He said that I'm not going to use my influence to appoint my successor. And that was one thing reporter was trying to get um, to Abe to speak and also trying to get him kind of like a reflect on his seven-year, eight-month legacy. Japan, for many years, has had a history of prime minister changing almost every year, and Abe installed the sense of stability 
by being in the office for seven years and eight months and, you know, winning elections, national elections, one after other. Just reporters just very curious to find out what he was thinking about his legacy. A lot of people have commented on Abe's dislike of the press over his time in office. And I just found it you know, quite funny that his parting gift to journalists was a 5 p.m. news conference on a Friday. And I'm sure you've been in incredibly busy <laughs> since covering it all. Um, but just, you know, over the next few days, few weeks, uh, what, what will you be doing to cover the happenings? Right. So the LDP, Liberal Democratic Party, is going to find its next leader uh, who will most likely become the next prime minister. It is... 6 p.m. on Tuesday, September 1. And so far, um, the party's policy council chairman, uh, Humi Okishida, and former defense minister, Shigeru Ishiba, have announced their candidacies for the leadership election. And tomorrow, Chief Cabinet Secretary Yoshihide Suga uh, is expected to announce his candidacy. And it's going to be a very busy few weeks. And uh, there are reports um, that uh, the the party is going to hold an election on September 14th and convene an extraordinary diet session on September 16th to formally appoint the new prime minister. And then the new prime minister is expected to uh, form a new cabinet and then there you go. That will be the beginning of a new era under a new prime minister. That was Satoshi Sugiyama, who will be reporting all the latest from Parliament and the Prime Minister's office over the coming weeks. Follow his work on the Japan Times website. Joining me now is Tobias Harris, author of The Iconoclast, a brand new biography of Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, published just last week, making it perhaps the most timely biography ever to be published. Tobias Harris, welcome to Deep Dive. Uh, I appreciate that it's late in Washington where you are right now, so thank you very much for joining me today. And you must be delighted with the reception your book has received. I, I mean, it's actually, it's, it's unbelievable. My, my plan writing the book and the timing of writing and getting it published was really around the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. And then, of course, those Olympics were delayed. And then my book was delayed. And the end of August ended up just being the date that was picked when we rescheduled. Somehow, the fates had it that it was officially published in the UK the day before Prime Minister Abe resigned. So it's it's been an interesting few days. Yeah, I mean, what timing? I don't think you could have planned it better. I want to get your reaction to that resignation. Abe's current term as Prime Minister wasn't supposed to end until September 2021. So were you surprised by his resignation last Friday? And did you think this was how his premiership might end? Well, to your second question first... I mean, I certainly thought, I mean, and I think many people certainly thought that, you know, when Prime Minister Abe came back in 2012, five years after he had resigned, in part due to, you know, an episode of his chronic ulcerative colitis, which he's struggled with his entire life, you know, he made a strong case in 2012 that thanks to a newly approved drug and a new exercise and stress management regimen, that it wouldn't be an issue. And really, for the better part of the last eight years, it really hasn't. People have not really had to think about it. I mean, occasionally, during some tenser moments, the tabloids would talk about, well, maybe there are rumors that uh, the prime minister's health is, is suffering. But it, it hadn't been a factor. And so, 
certainly was a little surprising that you know after all these years you know for him to be felled by this condition again was was a little surprising and when did we get the first inklings that he might be in ill health i mean if you go back to the beginning of august where at that point maybe there had been a couple of tabloid reports about well you know with with the pandemic and the stress of struggling fighting the pandemic and he hasn't been able to take a break you know maybe something's going on but it was just in the tabloids it's hard to know how serious to take that but you know by the time that that first hospital visit and then the second one afterwards uh, you know suddenly it became a very real possibility and and together with that a number of his closest allies publicly calling for him to take a break i mean clearly something was wrong clearly there was an effort you know, to try to get him through this and hope that somehow he would recover, you know, before it really became a political issue. But after that second hospital visit, you know, he was going to have to come clean one way or another. And if he wasn't healthy, given the circumstances Japan faces, I mean, there was almost no choice. Yeah. And since he resigned, I've read a lot about ulcerative colitis, the illness that Abe has. And I had no idea what a debilitating illness that it could be. In its worst form, it sounds like something that would make living very normal life extremely difficult let alone if you're trying to lead a country i mean it makes it makes his you know his tenure his now record setting tenure i mean that much more remarkable that it somehow uh, had gotten everything to work through i mean really through i think a, tr- a tremendous amount of discipline to keep it um under control and to, and to manage to govern the you know sort of the pace he governed he governed it at a an extraordinary frenetic pace. I mean, I looked at the numbers recently. He took 81 foreign trips you know, in less, you know, in the less than eight years that he was prime minister, which is really an extraordinary number and, and a grueling schedule. And he really stuck to that. So let's return to that first part of the question, which is, were you surprised by Abe's resignation last Friday? So, by, I mean, over the course of last week, there were lots of rumors and you know, lots of communication back and forth with people I know throughout Tokyo trying to figure out what exactly was going on. And midweek, I thought, well, maybe he is going to resign based on what I was hearing. And then by Thursday, it seemed, well, okay, you know, Suga was saying that he was fine and Amari said he was fine. So maybe, okay, maybe that means, um, you know, he'll say that he's he hasn't been well, but he's getting over it and, and he'll stay on. And then at 3.50 in the morning, local time here in D.C., I woke up hoping to catch you know his press conference that was starting 10 minutes after that. And by the time I woke up, the news had broken that he resigned. And let's, I, I, I was surprised. I was not expecting to wake up and, and see that. Japan's longest-serving Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has announced he is stepping down. Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe is stepping down. Japan's longest-serving Prime Minister has confirmed he's resigning. Fighting an ongoing battle with Shinzo Abe's most recent term began in 2012. So just putting Abe's resignation into the context of the last year, even back in March of 2020, Toshihiro Nikai, who's the Secretary General of the LDP and one of Abe's biggest supporters historically, was suggesting that Abe might actually run for a fourth term as leader of the LDP and extend his run as Prime Minister. But even before there was speculation about Abe's health this summer, we've really seen Abe take a bit of a backseat in politics, to the point that my colleague Satoshi Sugiyama even wrote a piece that was asking where Abe was, that he seemed to be missing in action at a very crucial time for Japan. So how did Abe's grip on power deteriorate over the course of 2020? Clearly, it starts with with the pandemic, and it's interesting because, of course, Japan. I mean, if you were to look at a list of you know Japan's fellow uh, developed democracies, I mean, Japan is near the top when it comes to its successful management, and and not just you know, the overall 
case numbers, but also just the number of deaths have been kept down. Sitting here in the United States, I, I feel like I'm not really in a position to judge any other country because the United States is unfortunately um, setting all kinds of records. But I mean, you know, nationally, Japan has handled it remarkably well. And the question is whether that happened in spite of the prime minister rather than because of. And, and too often, from the moment the Diamond Princess arrived at Yokohama, it seemed that every time he was faced with the decision, it took too long. He you know, basically didn't have a sense of the direction he wanted to go or wasn't getting the right information. And the decision-making apparatus was just not functioning in a way that I think it actually had quite effectively for most of his tenure. There are lots of potential explanations for that. Early in the year, there were reports of him uh, not getting along well with Suga as, as part of the fallout from the Sakura viewing party scandal, where you know, which was partly Suga's doing, and he was certainly involved in some of the more questionable dimensions of that scandal. And so, uh, you know, there, there was reports of tension between them. There's a question of just the priorities, and and you know, the question that every leader in the world has faced. You know, how do you balance public health and protecting your economy from a, a significant blow. And it seemed that Abe never quite figured out how to strike that balance. And in the process, you had a lot of, you know, basically local officials, you know, you had the governor, you know, Governor Koike in Tokyo, um, Governor Yoshimura in, in Osaka, um, basically outmaneuvering Abe, you know, looking much more aggressive and forthright and, you know, signaling, you know, what needed to be done to contain the outbreak and, and he was a step behind other leaders. It's interesting you raised the point about Koike, for example, outmaneuvering him and seizing the moment. And I think that when you look around the rest of the world as well, typically leaders who've led countries that have had a very good response to the coronavirus have emerged from this with significantly increased popularity. And I think that's what we saw with Koike winning the Tokyo election earlier this summer. But in contrast to Koike's victory over the summer, we also saw that the approval of Abe's cabinet dropped to 35.1% in July, down from 40% in June. So he clearly didn't communicate a sense that he was in charge. Yeah, and I think I think people heard that. And I think you know, there were just a number of episodes that you can point to. I mean, even on the economic front, where you know, his government came out with this plan and it was going to be, uh, we're going to give cash payments to limited number of low income households and you know, this is this is the plan and the party the LDP and the government have agreed and we're going to get it done and then you know a week after that thanks to resistance from Komeito they had to completely walk that back this totally unprecedented you know the cabinet's already approved the budget but oh wait hold on we're going to we got to call it back and completely redo it and it's not totally unprecedented that a budget has been redone but nothing like the kind of numbers that were entailed in recalling the budget and then drafting something new. I mean, and I mean, that for me was such a profoundly, I mean, both, I mean, a materially significant moment, but symbolically such a moment like that, you know, for the government to have to walk back such a major policy initiative like that. I mean, it would have been unthinkable for most of Abe's tenure. Do you think that was the beginning of the end of Abe for you? For me, that was probably the key turning point. I mean, it was after that, it was just, it was such a sign, I think, that his authority was vanishing. Because if ruling party backbenchers were defying him like that, I mean, it was just hard to see what he could do to get everyone back in line. You know, the one thing he could have done, and, and it's remarkable to think about at this point, that, you know, back in July, there was actually talk about Abe calling a snap election, you know, for some time in the next couple of months from now. But, 
uh, th- I mean, that was so that was pretty much his last card. I mean, the the threat of a snap election, I mean, is a useful tool for a prime minister to enforce discipline on his own party and force people to to toe the line. I mean, that which of course that's another episode. The the amount of open resistance from you know from Nikai, from Komeito, from some other leading LDP members. Every you know this open opposition to, to to Abe playing basically the last card that he had moments like these that showed that you know the emperor all of a sudden if he's not naked he's going to be naked pretty soon even before Abe announced his resignation on Friday there was a lot of discussion about who might replace him with only a year to go to the end of his time as leader of the LDP. But it seems like the suddenness of his resignation has caught even his own party off guard. So with no heir apparent, who are the prospective candidates to replace Abe in your view? Well, I think as of Monday lunchtime, when we're talking, um, it, it seems pretty clear at this point that the party is moving decisively and quickly to to a consensus candidate, and that would be Chief Cabinet Secretary um, Suga Yoshihide, who, while there has been some discussion about him as a potential successor, I mean, I think he's been discounted to a certain extent, despite being the chief spokesman for the government. I mean, his public profile has been low. He's always been pretty low on, uh, you know, in polls that ask who voters want to see as the next prime minister. Um, but given the circumstances of Abe's resignation with you know just about a year left um, in his term as leader of the LDP, an extremely uh, crowded uh, political agenda for that year, you know, starting with the pandemic, the economic fallout of the pandemic, this question of whether the Olympics are going to happen, coping with the U.S. election, whatever the U.S. election brings, uh, worsening relations with China, worsening relations with South Korea. I mean, we can go, you know, we can go on and on. I mean, it is there is a lot awaiting, you know, Abe's successor. Not a time for a political vacuum. No, and and not you know not a time for someone who needs to grow into the role. And and I think that perception has has I think doomed former foreign minister and LDP policy chief Kishida Fumio's chances. I mean, I think you know there's been a, a consensus for a while that he was Abe's favorite, and and it was his to lose. And I think as the prospect of a vacancy became more real, and now that it is a real challenge that the LDP is facing, I think Kishida has wilted. You know, no one is no one seems to be lining up to support him or you know pushing his candidacy forward. You know, but in the meantime, uh, you you have seen factions come out, you know, explicitly in support of Suga. And you know, he seems to be finding his moment that you know he was you know just a veteran of this government and and is going to be able to pick up you know, essentially where Abe left off in a way that none of the other contenders really can match. I do want to draw attention, though, to the other big name who's previously run against Abe and has been a frequent critic of him. And that's his former defence minister, Shigeru Ishiba. And he's very popular with the public, more so than any other LDP candidate, I think. So does he have a chance in this race? Despite polling well, I mean, he's been a long shot because Ishiba is just not popular with, uh, you know, with the LDP's lawmakers. So he's got a nice, he's got a big grassroots following, but he's not been able to overcome 
just a dislike for him among his colleagues in the LDP. And uh, so, in, you know, when he ran against Abe in 2018, he, you know, he had a surprisingly, I think, strong showing in the first run, you know, the, the voting among LDP members or LDP supporters, I should say. But then when it came to the vote among party members, I mean, he was far, far behind Abe, which, you know, of course, Abe is an incumbent prime minister. It's going to be hard for anyone to defy him. So the particularly severe challenge for him now is that it looks that in the interest of speed and you know, moving on to a, a new prime minister as quickly as possible. I mean, the LDP seems prepared to use its, its in its bylaws, there's a, um, a clause that lets it in urgent situations uh, suspend the requirement for a public election to fill a vacancy. And so it seems likely that they're going to invoke that, which means that the bulk of votes will be cast by LDP lawmakers with three votes given to each of the 47 prefectural chapters. If, assuming that actually happens, we'll know on Tuesday, it's going to be very hard for Ishiba to win a vote dominated by LDP lawmakers, and particularly given the push to, to reach a consensus candidate. I just want to try and clarify that point about voting for the LDP leadership then. So under a normal election, the leader would be decided by a combination of votes from the general public who are members of the LDP, as well as votes from lawmakers who are members of the LDP. But this time around, because of a need for expediency, the LDP is considering limiting the vote to just the lawmakers, which would disadvantage a candidate like Shigeru Ishiba, who's previously performed very well with the general members of the LDP and not the lawmakers. Yeah, I mean, so that has, that'll be formally decided on Tuesday. And there has been some debate uh, since Abe announced um, that he would resign. And, you know, in particular, there's been a lot of pushback from younger LDP members, uh, you know, uh, most notably uh, Koizumi Shinjiro pushing back against this idea and, you know, younger members saying, you know, that to preserve um, the trust of the public, we have to, we have to have an open election. And you understand that. And, you know, but to some extent you wonder how much that's just, you know, young, young LDP members, you know, you know, doing what's expected of young LDP members, you know, being reformist, good government types and, you know, calling for, for openness and transparency. I mean, that's just kind of what they're supposed to do given, you know, the emergency situation and the fact that they, they really want to have a new government in place to begin tackling some of these challenges. It's very unlikely, I think, that the LDP on Tuesday is going to say, well, actually, we're going to have a public election. So I think you're going to get a closed election. The the rate at which factions are lining up behind Suga, it's certainly possible that he might deter pretty much anyone from running. Uh, there are already signs that um, Defense Minister Konotaro is probably not going to run, in which case, you know, that takes another kind of major candidate out of the field. Kishida will probably run, but, you know, he and he has his own faction, you know, ensuring that, you know, he'll, he'll have at least some support. But it's, you know, it's really hard to see anyone being able to make as plausible a case as Suga is making right now. Mm. And, and you mentioned the name of Shinjiro Koizumi just then. Um, is there anyone from like the younger arms of the party that m- might stand a chance in this election? Or, or do you think they'll think it's you know, not their battle to fight now? No, I mean, I think given the circumstances, I mean, in, in Koizumi, I mean, he's, he's actually pre- he's pretty savvy. I mean, he knows, uh, you know, I think he's learned not to get too caught up in his own hype. And he needs more seasoning. I mean, his... his year as environment minister i mean it's been 
mean, it hasn't been, you know, it hasn't been a debacle, but I mean, he's had, you know, some moments that weren't great and just needs, you know, more experience and more time in government. And, you know, I'm sure he will get it over time, but he's not, you know, not a candidate for this year. I don't think he'll be a candidate for next year when, you know, when Abe's term was set to end. And so the LDP will have another vote then. So whoever ends up being voted leader of the LDP in the coming weeks, they will inherit Abe's position as Prime Minister of Japan. Will they have to call a general election to shore up their support among the public, or will that wait until 2021 after Abe's term was supposed to end? So they certainly don't They don't necessarily have to call a general election. And you know, the arguments against doing it that led Abe to abandon his thoughts about holding one back in July when when there was a lot of speculation about it. I mean, I think those still hold. The, the economy being in the state it's in, you know, the pandemic still being a concern. Yeah, you know, that I, I think there's there would still be a lot of pushback. And I think from um from Komeito, the LDP's coalition partner, which was very vocal about not wanting to contest an election, I think you'd still hear uh similar you know calls to to wait and to hold off till next year. Yeah, that there's just too much to do, and and the country doesn't need the distraction. I mean, maybe if you know you get a new prime minister who has a, a major uh, surge in support and, and a genuine honeymoon period, maybe maybe takes advantage of the you know of, of those assets and tries to win a public mandate at a general election. But I but I think there'll still be a lot of pushback. So if a continuity candidate or consensus candidate like Suga ends up winning and there's no general election, would he just become a caretaker prime minister holding out until a general election in 2021? If you get someone like Suga, well, I mean, there are a lot of different ways a a Suga premiership could go, but he's on the older side. He'll turn 72 in December. You know, he might just be a caretaker and, you know, in the interim giving uh, the the would be next generation of leaders who have been hinting at their desire to run, or, or more than hinting at their desire to run, a chance to articulate their vision a little more, and that you'd have the battle over what the post Abe LDP should look like in a year's time when everyone thought it was going to be anyway. It's certainly possible, also though, if Suga has a good year and he manages to navigate a lot of the problems we've talked about, that. You know, he runs for a three-year term of his own and, and wins it and continues to serve. And if he does well enough in office, has the kind of support that he you know, can feel comfortable leading Japan to a general election by October 2021 when the Diet's term ends. So, I mean, we just have to see. I mean, there are a lot of, a lot of questions that are yet to be answered, you know, starting with who the, the leader is actually going to be. You know, it's it's going to be an interesting year, and and probably the most interesting year in Japanese politics. First time, maybe maybe since Abe's first year, when when we were discovering what he was capable of. That was Tobias Harris, and his new book, The Iconoclast, is out now and can be ordered via the Hearst website for global delivery. Deep Dive listeners can use the promo code ICONOCLAST25 to get a 25% discount. A link and instructions will be in the show notes. Tobias will also be joining us in part two of this two-part look at the end of Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's time in office, and we'll be discussing Abe's legacy. 
Thanks also to Satoshi Sugiyama, who managed to find the time in his busy reporting schedule to talk to us for this episode. Finally, a request from me. If you're enjoying Deep Dive, please take a moment to rate us and review us on your favorite podcasting service, or even better, share it with someone you think will enjoy it. That's all for now. Until next episode, Podskale Summer. <laughs>